Thank you for listening to TMA's Practice Well podcast. TMA, helping you improve the health of all Texans. Did you know that you can claim CME credits for many of the TMA Practice Well podcast episodes? Just go to www.texmed.org forward slash CME to go. That's www.texmed.org forward slash CME T-O-G-O, to register for your episode and follow the instructions to claim CME. Please be advised that the information and opinions presented as part of this program should not be used or referred to as primary legal sources and does not replace the advice of your healthcare attorney. Nor should the information and opinions presented as part of this program be construed as establishing medical standards of care for the purposes of litigation, including expert testimony. The standard of care is dependent upon the particular facts and circumstances of each individual case, and no generalization can be made that would apply in all cases. Hello, I'm Cheryl Kroviak. I'm the director of the TMA Education Center, and I produce the TMA Practice Well podcast, where we strive to help physicians and their practice thrive. And this is Ask the Expert, where you send in your questions and TMA expert staff and guests provide answers. This episode is moderated by Sylvia Salazar, VP of Membership and Leadership Development. Welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're joining the Ask the Expert program, a virtual series to bring members direct access to professional experts who can answer questions on legal practice management, advocacy, and regulatory topics. Today's event is optimizing your practice revenue. This session will discuss practical tips for managing and improving your practice's revenue. Today's speakers are Heather Betridge, Associate Vice President, TMA Practice Management Services, Cara Benson, Manager, TMA Practice Management and Reimbursement Services, and Terry Diebler, TMA Practice Management Consultant. Terry, can you please tell us what you're hearing from the field? Hello, thank you for having me today. I would like to start off by talking about one of the most common questions we get, which is my AR is out of control, what can I do? So first, you're wanting to evaluate your problem. Most practice management systems will have a claims dashboard that'll summarize this information for you with how much money is outstanding and from whom, whether that's the insurance company or the patient, and they'll even drill down to which insurance company you're having the issues with. Then ask yourself these questions. Do you have automation in place? Things like eligibility and benefit solutions, auto posting of bulk payments? Are you collecting what you can from your patient up front? If you know their benefits, ask for the payment at time of service. Do you have enough staff handling the revenue cycle? And do you have the right staff handling the revenue cycle? 
Some employees are great at editing charges, but not, they're not very effective at collection. So make sure you have the right people on the bus doing the right jobs. Then check and see if there's infrastructure or setup problems causing the issues, such as a new clearinghouse setup or a new provider and they need the MPI numbers, those sorts of infrastructure and setup problems. Look for specific payers that are repeatedly denying your claims. Find out why. And are you being denied for coding issues? You might have a provider that needs some additional training. There are many reasons this could be happening, but getting to the root cause of the problem and solving what's happening so that you can get back to normal and back on track will be very important. And then if necessary, bring in a third-party consulting service to analyze the problem so that you can, again, solve the problem and move on and get back to normal. Thank you, Terry. Very practical tips. I appreciate that. What is the best way to determine various ACO fee schedules to determine if we are contracted with the best option in our area? This is Heather. Unfortunately, we don't have access to contracts rates here at TMA just because it, it toes a very fine line since we're an association where we don't have that information. But if you are coordinating you know, credentialing and contracting in-house, definitely review what's being put in front of you ask questions, you know, try to negotiate and see if there's some way to get any better deal. But if your credentialing and contracting is outsourced, they'll be in a much better position to be able to tell you what they're seeing by way of other offers, especially if they're in a market where there's other physicians maybe of the same specialty. Great question. Thank you for asking that. And I think that's good advice, Heather. Always rely on those folks that you've contracted with to help you with those types of things to find out what knowledge they have of other contracts and things um, that are happening right now. So good point. I have another question. Can we require social security numbers of parents on new patient forms? Um, and they pointed out that they see kids. I'd be happy to answer that. Collection of the social security number used to be tied to the ID number with insurance carriers, that is no longer the case. They even changed the Medicare numbers to get away from theft of your personal financial information through your social security number. However, if you want to collect later down the line, if you're not collecting at time of service and there's a big collection issue later, the reporting to the credit bureaus requires the social security number. So Really, that was the only purpose of the social security number collection at this point in time. Again, years ago, it was tied to the ID number, but that's no longer the case. It's also a liability, you know, a, a risk issue because you're having that social security number saved in your system. Um, and if you're not using it, I would just alleviate that risk altogether. Thank you. So uh, Terry, which revenue cycle management process can be automated to improve efficiencies? Well, there are actually lots. And when it comes to staffing the revenue cycle department, over the years, we've actually decreased the amount of full-time staff you need because of automation. 
So as I spoke about earlier, it's really important to have eligibility and benefit verification. And they can be um, interfaced with your practice management system. And it kind of happens on the back end. A report is generated daily. These are set up. You don't really have to do anything with it. It pulls that data. It verifies the eligibility and sends the information back to the practice management system. And then your staff is only working the exceptions, people that aren't covered, people who maybe you don't have the right information in there, the demographics are wrong, that sort of thing. But you'll be able to see what you know the deductibles are and this way you can collect up front. And then submitting claims to a reputable clearinghouse so that claims are sent on a daily basis it is not a big deal to do that with automation. And then make sure everything is automated on the payment side. You're getting things, EFT, electronic funds transfer. So there's no, someone has to go run to the bank or creating a deposit. All your funds are being transferred automatically to your bank from the payers to the bank and even from patients to the bank. And then electronic remittance advice, auto posting functions. You don't need someone to post every payment. They can be auto-posted. Use e-statements instead of mailing statements and send them out daily. They now have functionality where you can uh, text message or through your portal, um, send those e-statements. And, and then you're not dealing with, again, using the mail service. And then make sure your website has lots of functionality for handling patient payments, making appointments, finding out information about you. Automating all those things saves a full-time employee from answering those questions or having to do those tasks. Great use of automation. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are a couple questions. The first one is, we had a claim denied by Blue Cross Blue Shield after reviewing the note stating that the provider's signature did not look correct, the deed looked like a J per the reviewer. Can they do that? Uh, this is Cara Benson. So we have been seeing this more and yes, they can do that. So what we would suggest is to have a signature log on file. That way it's a set document that identifies the physician or provider that signed the claim and you can appeal it and send that signature log in with the claim. Thank you. The next question, is there a way to see if our hiring practices for new physicians seems on par with other institutions? Example, like competitive salaries, benefits, et cetera, as a small practice. Hi, this is Heather. Yeah, we have access to industry benchmark information. And so we're able to give that information to you. If you call the TMA Knowledge Center, we can look up by specialty, years in practice. We don't have specific market information. So if you're looking specific for, you know, the Dallas area or maybe a, a rural area, the purchase benchmark data that we have doesn't drill down to that level of detail, but there are, are online options like salary.com and um, indeed.com that have some databases that you can reference. Thanks, Heather. So I noticed that in the new practice pointer, some of that information was included. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So we, TMA launched a new practice management 
focused newsletter. Physicians are signing themselves up, but it was more intended for staff since they can use this information every single day and, and get it at their fingertips. But there is going to be a, a specific focus or theme for each issue. And this last one was about accessing benchmark information and salary information specifically for staff. And there's all kinds of links in the newsletter itself that you can utilize. Thank you. So there's a couple more questions. As we are using a lot of employee time on checking benefits, we have a Medicare heavy patient population. Is there a way of getting this done automated? We also do a lot of non-invasive vascular testing that needs checking of benefits. I can take that. Earlier in the conversation, I talked about the interfaces that are out there. There are standalone products, but check with your practice management EMR system. They normally have a recommendation for either a specific vendor that they partner with, or they have their own functionality where they do it in bulk. So you want to look a couple of days out. Obviously, you don't want to be checking benefits for patients coming in tomorrow because, you know, you want to be able to reach the patient. They have to budget maybe for something their deductible isn't met and they have to come in with $500. So you're going to want to do this three to five to seven days ahead of time. And there are solutions out there that will interface and do things in batches. So you, as I said earlier, you send it out at night on the back end. What it brings back to your system are the except will bring everything back reporting wise, but your staff only has to work the exception. So someone who isn't covered or someone who is no longer under Medicare, but they're under a Medicare Advantage plan. Those are the things, the exceptions that you'll have to work and you won't have to work all of the uh, benefits and eligibility for every patient. Thank you, Terry. Mm -hmm. So the next question is, is there a good example of an authorization form that the patient can sign notifying them that our statements will now be sent via text email? I'll take this one too. Um, you can create a registration form. I don't personally have a sample to give you, but your registration form, whether that be virtual, you know, or on paper form, or a better tip probably is your financial agreement. Almost every practice has a financial agreement. In the financial agreement, you can let the patient know that's how they will be, you will be sending your statements. And for the most part, that's how patients want to be contacted. That's how they want to correspond. Uh, you'd be surprised that, you know, they don't want to get a call in the middle of the day. Perhaps they're working and they can't take calls or a school teacher or whatever, that they would prefer to be contacted or correspondent with either through their portal, through their email address, or through their text messaging. And you can put that in your financial agreement. Yeah. And if it's a practice-wide change from something that you have already been doing, or maybe something that they're historically familiar with, go ahead and add a notification on your website as well. And that way you'll catch existing patients um, who access your website and then new patients who are visiting your website will get that same notification as well. Good point. Thank you. Any advice on how to get patients with outstanding balances to start paying? Outstanding balances. So the first thing is, is making sure that they are aware of what the process is going to be before they get into that situation. So communication upfront is first and foremost key. But, you know, one of the best billing, best practice I, I can give you is 
make it easy for patients to pay, meaning allow them to make payments over the phone, in person, through the mail, online, you know, through the website and the portal. Customize your statements so that there's a box to write in credit card information, but offer payment arrangements. You don't want to offer, you know, $10 a month for the next 10 years because that's not, you know, that's not helping anybody. But offer a, an acceptable arrangement um, have them fill out a commitment form and sign off on it that might be 50% this month, 50% next month, or in quarters, as long as it's paid off within X time frame. But making it easy is going to be incredibly beneficial. You might also consider upgrading your credit card terminal because they have machines now where you can enter in those payment arrangement details and then the credit card is automatically charged. So it's not not something that they have to think about or staff have to think about. So it's not adding anything, any additional work to anyone's plate. Great. So I'm going to call on Cara Benson, who's the manager of TMA Practice Management and Reimbursement Services. Cara, what are you hearing from the field? One of the ones we're getting is our, on the flip side, what Terry was talking about earlier about the AR being so large. On the flip side of that is there's not enough coming in. I don't know what's going on. One of the things to look for is making sure that you're you're billing for all the services that you are providing. If you are in a situation where you can provide chronic care management and transitional care management, those two services specifically are often overlooked. Chances are you're probably already doing them. So it's it would be important to see if that's something that you can bill. So if you're taking care of patients that have chronic conditions, two or more, or if you're taking care of a patient that has just been released from an inpatient site, check the requirements for those services and, and make sure that you're billing them out. Thank you for that. Are collection agencies not reporting outstanding medical bills now? And can an account be sent to collections if we don't have the guarantor's social security number? I'll be happy to take that. Keep in mind, again, the social security number is only if you can send it to a collection agency and they can done or collect for you. However, the social security number is needed if you want to uh, report their credit to a credit reporting, Equifax or whatever those uh, three big companies out there are. That's why you would need their social security number. But the collection agency can still do their job, which is following up, you know, making the phone calls, whatever it is on your behalf. And Sylvia, what was the first part of that question? Are collection agencies not reporting outstanding medical bills? Well, there was not really a law. I wouldn't call it a law, but there was an agreed upon plan by credit reporting bureaus that starting next year, medical debt was going to be in a totally different compartment. So small, what they consider small was under $500 of medical debt. And it may no longer be reportable. Also, if the debt is paid, it used to stay on the credit report for seven years, and that will go away as well. That will, once the credit, um, or once the account is paid and up to date, that will drop off immediately from the credit reporting information. 
So again, it's not really a law. It's something that was kind of agreed upon by the bureaus that anything under $500 will probably not be uh, affecting your credit if it's medical debt. If we could recommend any collection agencies, do we have any resource for that? Um, I personally don't. There are quite a few out there. You might go to your county medical societies. They often have, you know, vendors that they deal with that they prefer locally in your area, but I personally don't. I'm not sure about my colleagues. Yeah, as, as part of the circle of friends, I was trying to look up some of the counties real quick to see if they had recommended agencies listed in their circle. We used to endorse individual companies, but TMA no longer does that. So we don't have one specifically that we have a ongoing relationship with at this point. Great advice to look to the counties to see who they might recommend. Thank you for that. Um, Heather, what else are you hearing from the field? We get a lot of questions about just kind of a, a good rule of thumb um, regarding adjustments and write-offs. So let's go there. Um, okay, so best practices typically adjust off small balances of $10 or less. And really, that's to control collection costs because the cost to send a statement plus the, the dollar value of staff's time that's being spent chasing small balances added together, those dollars would be better spent pursuing insurance payments or the larger patient balances. So make sure that there's a designated adjustment code for the different types of adjustments. So you might have one for PPO contractual adjustments or professional courtesy or um, an adjustment for past filing deadlines and so on. Ideally, you want to avoid just lumping all adjustments into one category because that's not going to give you any actionable data or information down the road. And then for write-offs, best practices typically write off uncollected balances about 180 days from the date that the service is provided, because that's ample time to get the claim filed, submit documentation, you've exhausted appeals, etc. If the balance is determined to be uncollectible, then write it off and make sure that it's documented. Now, I will say that before any amount is adjusted or written off, be sure to include as part of your policies and procedures that staff thoroughly review the account and follow that paper trail, follow the money to make sure that no balls were dropped, that all opportunities were attempted, and then add a, a pop-up note into the account in your system so that if or when the patient does call back to schedule an appointment, you know, at their fingertips, staff can quickly see that they have a balance of you know, X dollars and they can still attempt to collect it at that point. But, and I'll stop there, but I mean, that's a whole, whole talk in and of itself, but keep in mind that you know, when the likelihood of actually collecting a small balance or it's, it's, um, it's really small return further pursuit on that account, it's going to be expensive and time consuming because we know that the value of that account diminishes significantly as an account ages, starting with them just walking out the door. So do a lot of work on the front end 
to have to go through it or, or avoid it on the back end. Thank you, Heather. I'm going to give Cara one last chance to answer. Um, I, I know you've been hearing other things about um, downcoding. What can you tell us about that and whether or not that's a good practice? Yes, often we hear that practices are afraid to get audited. So they will make it a point to downcode, specifically the evaluation and management codes. Downcoding is actually just as bad as upcoding. So it's really important to make sure that you're coding exactly what you are providing. And if you are nervous about that, there are third-party companies that can come in and, you know, provide an audit and provide that reassurance that you are coding appropriately. And, and that way you have that peace of mind and you have the revenue that you are supposed to be getting because you are no longer downcoding. So don't, definitely don't downcode. <laughs> Thank you very much. And thank you to all of you for joining us today. And thank you to all of our speakers. We hope you take away practical tips you can start using today. Check the episode description for the link to claim CME. Remember to like and follow the TMA Practice Well podcast so you get every episode. Until next time, stay well.